our Father and our God, we praise you for your amazing grace. Where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. We give to you our sin. You give to us salvation. What a sweet exchange. Lord, there are no doubt some people here today who have never bowed the knee to Christ. That is, they've never acknowledged that they are a sinner and Jesus is the Savior and Lord. I pray that today, Lord, you will speak to their heart with the wonderful melody of grace. Let them know that Jesus longs to carry their burden, that he calls them to come, lay their sinful burdens at his feet at the cross, and he will give them rest. And for those who come today, believers in Christ, to worship, Lord, lift our hearts heavenward. And may we sense something of the wonderful plan of God working about in our own world. Bless us today, Lord, as we bow before you in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Cause and effect plays a very important role in our universe, understanding that this universe has been created by God and continues to be governed by God. And he, the one who allows certain natural laws, we call them, to work about, he still is in control. He can suspend the natural effect of any given cause to accomplish his glorious purpose. Now, cause and effect is something that we face all of the time. For instance, you eat too much and you don't exercise. The cause. The effect, you gain weight. Unless you're one of those miserable people who can eat whatever you want to, you don't exercise and never gain weight. Wait, we do our best to love you still. <laughs> or how about this for a cause? Many years ago, Melanie was hired to play the piano. That's the cause. The effect is we've been enjoying beautiful music for years. <laughs> the cause is the why. The effect is the what. I came across this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, for every effect there is a cause, and for every cause there is an effect. <laughs> That's a perfect example of a famous person sounding smart and saying nothing. But far better to go to the word of God and come across his version of cause and effect, which we're going to see in the book of Romans, chapter 11. So let me encourage you to turn to that portion of scripture. Most of the verses are going to be on the screen for you if you need that. Romans, chapter 11. And verse 11 is where we want to begin. And the apostle Paul asks a question, much like he did in verse one. 
in verse 1, he said, did God reject his people? And the answer was no. Paul said, I'm a Jew. I'm saved. And there's a remnant according to the election of grace that still exists. Even uh, they did in the past, they do in the present. And even though the majority of the Jews have rejected God at Paul's time and still to this day and have been hardened because of their rebellion, yet God has not forgotten his people. He's still working and bringing them to faith. Now the question in verse 11 is, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And Paul gives the same answer that he gave in verse one. Not at all, the strongest negative possible. Absolutely not. He says, Israel's fall is not total or complete, and nor is Israel's fall final, for he still has work to do with his people. Paul sees a future for the nation of Israel. But as we go into this section of scripture, we're introduced with what I would call an unusual providence. Providence is God governing the affairs of men. And while there is much cause and effect that seems very natural, God sometimes does something unusual in his providence in the government of men. You remember the famous lines of William Cowper's hymn, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea. He rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's ways are good, even though they don't appear to be good from what we can see. But beyond the veil, God is at work. And that's what we read in this section of scripture. This unusual providence is explained a little further in verse 11. No, God hasn't had Israel stumble beyond the point of recovery. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Wow, that is some shocking stuff. So the cause of their rejection of Christ, the word transgression speaks about their unbelief. The effect was salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then that becomes a cause, (laughs) the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, which has the effect of making Israel jealous. Three fascinating movements of cause and effect. Now think about it. Paul is saying here in verse 12 that salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. The first event, Israel's rejection, implies the second event, the salvation of the Gentiles, which by the way, you and I are involved with that, unless you are a Jew, most of us are probably Gentiles here, we're involved in that effect. So the blessing of God, as it were, ricochets back and forth. It goes to Israel, then they reject it, and it ricochets to the Gentiles, and they believe it, and then it ricochets back to Israel. They become envious, and then ultimately, as we're going to see in this chapter, 
dry bones will come to life. It ricochets back to Israel again because God has not forgotten his people whom he foreknew. He still has a plan and he's still working. And one day that plan is going to be amazing. Well, it is amazing now, but it's going to be amazing to us when we don't see the frowning providence, but we see the smiling face of mercy. Amen. Now, if you think of the missionary journeys of Paul, this happened on at least four occasions where Paul went to the Jews and they rejected his message, and so he went to the Gentiles. For instance, the first missionary journey, Antioch of Pisidia, Acts 13, they took the message to the Jews. They rejected the message. And Paul and Barnabas said to them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But since you rejected it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. A quotation from Isaiah. So what was always planned, reaching out to the Gentiles, in the providence of God takes place when the nation of Israel rejects the Lord Jesus. And in a strong way, the gospel goes out to the Gentile. Acts 18, verse 6, Paul said, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent of it. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. The Jews reject. The apostles go to the Gentiles and they accept. Rejection is redirected to the mercy and grace of God on our behalf. Someone put it this way, God will have a church in the world and at the end a wedding furnished with guests. If some will not come, others will be invited. And then... The result, again, the effect is that Israel is made envious. This is not something new. Back in Deuteronomy 32, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Paul has already used that back in Romans chapter 10. The Jews became envious of the apostles' popularity and success. The larger crowds and it was for envy that they took Jesus and crucified him. Here's a great principle for us. God can use the wickedness of man to praise him. When bad things happen to good people, God in providence can override and cause the effect to be glorious. There is no better example of this than Jesus Crucified by wicked hands and envious people. And yet, the result is the salvation of the world. We see that in Christ, but sometimes we don't see it in our own life. That the things that go against us and the things that trouble us are sometimes that unusual providence that God has planned to work about some amazing act of grace. If we would but live by grace, and trust the Lord with all of our heart. I love the old King James translation of Psalm 76.10. Surely the wrath of man will praise you, and the remainder of wrath you shall restrain. 
So God can hold back what he wants and he can allow what he wants. Read the book of Job. And in our suffering, grace is poured upon us because when we're weak, then we are strong and the light of God's grace draws others to Christ. It is a wonderful providence. So now look at verse 12. But if their transgression, their unbelief, Jews, means riches for the world, see Gentiles in that word world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their fullness bring? The newest NIV translation, their full inclusion. Now, this is an amazing text. In verse 12, it talks about the fullness of the Jews, referring to coming to faith in Christ. In verse 25, it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, for God will have his people from both groups and knows their number. And until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, as we see next week, Israel will still, for the most part, be unbelieving. This is an argument from uh, the smaller to the greater, the a fortiori argument. It proves a smaller point from a larger one or an evident already proven point logically deduces something else. So if the unbelief of the Jews is riches for the world, let's say it another word, if, away, if their loss means riches, wonderful, benevolent uh, riches of salvation for the Gentiles, how much greater will it be when the Jews are fully included? There's a fullness, the fullness of the Jews comes in. A fullness means the hardening of the Jews is removed. The restoration means that they are saved, increasing in number, and the message which now do not believe will be flipped and the majority, substantial majority, will be believers. Verse 13, Paul said, I'm talking to you Gentiles. And it's interesting to note that the Roman church was made up most likely of a majority of Gentiles. You have to understand the historical times in which Claudius, the emperor of Rome, persecuted the Jews and sent them away. And when they came back, they were often looked upon as second-class people. That's not news, is it? That the Jews would be looked down upon. So even in the Roman church, the apostle Paul had to encourage these people. You know, I'm, a, I'm an apostle to you guys. And that's good, but my main ministry to you Gentiles is this. I hope somehow to arouse in my own people envy so that some will be saved. That's verse 14. What an unusual ministry motive. What's your motive for serving Christ? Envy. Well, it sounds really bad because most of envy is personal, it's selfish, it's sinful, but not all envy is bad. Envy is good if our goal is the glory of God and the blessing he has offered for all people to enjoy. And when grace touches your life, 
You live in such a way, you should live in such a way that others see your life and say, I want what you have. How sad it would be if your neighbors and friends and coworkers say, you're a Christian? I don't want that. If you're a Christian, I'm staying as far away from the church as possible. And you know, a lot of that goes on. But we need to live in such a way that grace has changed us and transformed us. And people say, I want that peace. I want that joy. I want that confidence. I want that trust. I want that hope. Where can I get it? And always be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you and give it with meekness and humility. Paul said in chapter one, I've been called to be an apostle. He says in Romans chapter 15, I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And and at the end of verse 13, he says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry. Again, the word pride and envy in these two verses are actually positive. It's not sinful pride. It means he acknowledges his value. He sees its purpose. And one of the great purposes in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is not just their conversion, but arousing envy among his own people, the Jews. Did you know that you were saved not just for yourself? You ever thought about that? You're saved for the glory of God, to be sure, but you're saved to save others. You're saved to point others to Jesus. Did you ever think about that? Why, if it weren't so, God would save you and take you to heaven. Because that way there'd be no chance that you'd mess it all up. But God has left us here because he wants us to be in the world, not of the world, to be lights to the world. And that's what happens when God's grace touches our life. So we go from an unusual providence now to an amazing promise. And that is this promise that is articulated so well in verse 25, which we won't quite get to this morning. And so all Israel will be saved. What an amazing, it's astounding to think of it. It goes so much against what we personally see now. Verse 15. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The acceptance means that time when the Jews embrace the Savior. It's called the fullness, full inclusion in verse 12. And now it's their acceptance. What will it be but life from the dead? And that's where the wonderful portion of scripture comes in that Pastor Doug read a moment ago. Isn't that an exciting portion of scripture? Ezekiel 37, dry bones. I said he could either read it or sing it. (laughs) Would have been fun to hear him sing it. (laughs) The request has been made. (laughs) Ezekiel goes to a valley full of dust and dead bones dry. Son of man, can these bones live? And he gives a great answer. Only you know. 
And he said, prophesy to the bones. That's what preaching is, preaching to dry and dead bones. I'm sorry. (laughs) Spiritually speaking, right? Well, I can't bring life, only God knows. But he says, as you preach, surely breath will enter into them. The breath is the spirit of God, verse one, who led him out into that dry valley. Breath will enter in and they will live. I'll bring sinews on the bone and flesh over it and an army will stand up, but there's no breath in them. So keep preaching. Prophesy to the spirit or by the spirit, son of man, say breath. Come into these bones and the spirit of God mysteriously mysteriously from the four winds comes and they live, stand on their feet, an exceeding army. And then he says to the prophet, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel and indeed our bones are dry and our hope is lost and we have been cut off but I will pour my spirit in you and you will live and I will place you in your land. God has a hope for Israel. Talk about things looking bad for this wonderful nation. And it's hard to understand who Israel is because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. But the point being made is God has not forgotten his people and he's gonna bring them back from the dead. Now here's a thought that you've maybe never had. And I love this thought. And it comes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I mention his name so often, sometimes I forget that some of you may not know the name of the greatest English preacher who preached in the 1800s in London and is still known as the Prince of Expositors. In 1855, Spurgeon preached a sermon in London and he said this, grace exceeds sin in the numbers it brings beneath its sway. It is my firm belief that the number of the saved will be far greater than that of the damned or condemned. You ever think of that? More people in heaven than in hell when all is said and done. It is written that in all things Jesus shall have the preeminence. And why is this to be left out? Can we think that Satan will have more followers than Jesus? Oh, no. For while it is written that the redeemed are a number that no man can number, it is not recorded that the lost are beyond numeration. He's quoting from Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the land clothed in white robes. What a beautific vision. He gives two reasons. Think for a moment of the army of infant souls, infant souls, who are now in heaven. These are individuals who we talk about age of accountability, but not able to understand. That's before all the horrible work of abortion. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, then maybe abortion's not so bad. (laughs) No, no, no. You don't kill all the infants in the world because immediately they go to heaven. 
impossible. Man, we have the ability to think logically to the wrong conclusion. Here's his second reasoning, not only infant mortality, but he says, let it not be forgotten that the multitudes of converts in the millennial age will very much turn the scale, for then the world will be exceedingly populous and a thousand years of the reign of grace might, might easily suffice to overcome the majority accumulated by sin during 6,000 years of tyranny. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The trophies of free grace will be far more than the trophies of sin. I don't think we can be dogmatic on it, but I love the thought, don't you? I preach the word of God because it conquers. I preach the word of God because it accomplishes the purpose he desires. And I long to see a worldwide revival before he comes again. You say, I don't think that can happen. Dead bones can live if the spirit so works. That gets, gets me up in the morning. That gets me up on Sunday. Could this be the day that God brings numerous people into the kingdom? Well, then he goes and deals with a couple of metaphors in verse 16. The first deals with their ceremonial life. Verse 16, if a part of a dough offered as first fruits is holy, background is Numbers 15, you bring the harvest in and the first fruits are given to the Lord, the dough, the, uh, the, the small part of the whole. And if the small part is whole, is holy, then the whole batch is holy. He then goes to a metaphor that is going to be extended, the olive tree. He talks about if the root is holy, by the way, the root refers to the patriarchs of the Jewish nation, and the branches are the Jews. So now this is a, a metaphor from agricultural life. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, same wording of Ezekiel 37. And this is referring to the Jews who do not believe in the Lord. And you Gentiles, though you're a wild olive shoot, and you have been grafted in, which by the way goes against nature. Usually you graft in from the cultivated tree into the wild, but this has been turned. And you, the wild shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now you share the nourishing sap from the olive root, from the patriarchs, from the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. Read the book of Ephesians, how God has brought the Gentiles in with the Jews and made them one. And we benefit from the holy root. And we share the nourishment that comes to the people of God. Verse 18, if this is true, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches, which apparently was happening in Rome. There were at times, outbreaks of violence against the Jews. As I said, they were looked at as second-class citizens. The Jews would not assimilate into Greek culture, which made them very unpopular. And even in the church, there wasn't the warm acceptance that there should have been, and anti-Semitism abounded. 
And so he says to these Gentiles, don't consider yourself superior to those branches that were broken off. For if you do consider this, you don't support the root, the root supports you. The patriarchs hold you up. And remember that. It's the covenant made to Abraham that becomes the blessing to all people because it includes Abraham's son, the Lord Jesus. Verse 19, you say then, listen to the pride here, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. <laughs> where, where is pride acceptable when it is pride in self, in the church of God's grace? You're saved by grace and grace alone. You know what you and I deserve? Damnation. Anything above that is pure grace. Never forget it. And you're not saved because you were better than someone else and they were broken off because they didn't, uh, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you've joined because of faith. That's what verse 20 says. You stand by faith. So don't be arrogant. Fear. Tremble. This is the fear of God. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people revere him. Proverbs chapter one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think it's chapter nine, it's the beginning of knowledge. And Job 28, 28 says the same thing. In the, in the end, fear God. Honor him, worship him, love him, serve him, and obey his word. So there's no place for bragging when you stand by faith. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Speaking about unbelief. Consider therefore, what a great verse, verse 22. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell because of unbelief, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. A couple things here about this amazing verse. We need to see doctrine from all of its sides. We need to see the biblical balance. God is not one or the other. He is both good and he is stern, right? He is merciful and loving and holy and just. And the goodness of God is his amazing grace. He's not a ruthless tyrant, but nor is he a weak, doting father who is going to look aside at your sin. He sent his son to die for it. That's how serious it is. Otherwise, you will be cut off. John Stott says, not that those who truly belong to him will ever be cut off, but that continuance or perseverance is the hallmark of God's authentic people. Whenever you come to one of these if statements, it's simply showing that if you don't continue, you are giving evidence of never being converted. Verse 23, and if they do not persist, by the way, same word as continue in verse 22, if the Jews do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. 
for God is able to graft them in again. You say, you know, that's not how horticulture works. You, you can't graft in a broken branch. This is more theological than agricultural. God's able to do it because he's not done with Israel. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, that argument, how much more, if God can do that, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own tree? So there's a warning and a promise, isn't there? Since the natural branches were broken off, the wild ones could be too. There's no room for complacency. But since the wild branches were grafted in, the natural ones can be too. There's no room for despair. Notice this, the providence of God in your life may be very unusual, but that's not new for him. Respond in grace. And secondly, take hope. I love this simple explanation of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. That's it. We may be, humanly speaking, losing today, but there's a remnant. And people are coming to faith in Christ in some places of the world in droves. We are so myoptic that we think little America, you know, if it's not happening here, it's not happening anywhere. Get over yourself. Oh, God's doing a great work in some places, an amazing work. Wish, we wish to God it were here and pray that it will be. But Jesus wins. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. See his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. In just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. And he wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give us hope today to dispel the darkness and despair I pray that we would get our eyes off of CNN and Fox News and get our eyes in the word on the king who wins. And that you have a plan and it's working perfectly. Lift up our spirits and cause us to see, Lord, that there is going to be a great ingathering at the end to the praise of of the glory of your grace. Amen and amen. amen.